Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with the beautiful and brilliant Helen Rollins. Helen is a writer and a filmmaker. In this episode, we explore various different strands within her project. We talk about her documentary that she's working on and her fascination with Tammy Faye Baker as a sort of saint for a radical Christianity or an emancipatory, contradictory spirituality. We look at her short film, All One, an interpretation of a Buddhist parable that reflects on the life found in the ubiquity of loss and suffering. We discuss her article, The Man Who Shot Liberty, Valance, and Masculinity, and so much more. Helen is full of wonderful insights. She and I are kindred spirits and really resonate with a Lacanian, Hegelian approach to life. Uh, staying close to the contradiction, uh, reconciling ourselves to that rather than creating oppositions. And I think that's where we really resonate with someone like Tammy Faye Baker. Uh, This was a really fascinating conversation. I'm so glad that we were able to make the time to connect and to explore these marvelous and deep and challenging ideas. And I hope that you enjoyed it as well. If you really liked it, I want to encourage you to share this episode with friends on social media. 
And if you really enjoy this episode, if you have benefited from the podcast, I want to encourage you to go to the Apple Podcast app and don't just leave me a rating, hopefully five stars, but take a couple minutes and leave me a thoughtful review because those reviews really do help uh, people understand what the podcast is about. It gets the content out there and hopefully this will be a chance to encourage people to go out, connect, explore these ideas, and continue the conversation. So, Helen, thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast, Therapy for Guys. It means a lot that you made the time to connect, and I'm just really looking forward to having this conversation with you. Not sure. Looking forward to it as well. Awesome. Well, just for the sake of the listeners, I'll just trace a little bit of how we got connected. Um, I have a friend who first turned me on to Peter Rollins because I was interviewing, I guess, somebody he knows, Dr. Richard Boothby. And then I found out about Jay Baker, who I guess they're friends. And then when I was doing research on Tammy Faye Baker and watching all the documentaries and getting to know Jay, uh, I came across your work when I kind of had posted this thing on Instagram that I thought maybe Tammy Faye could be this saint of a radical or Mm -hmm. emancipatory, contradictory type of spirituality or Christianity. And, uh, it turned out you had already said something like that. So I was like, damn it, I wasn't the first one. <laughs> but uh, in, in connecting with your work and reading more about you, I was fascinated. And yeah, so so I think there's a lot of um, intersections with what we do. And, and I'm just wanting to, yeah, connect with you and learn more about your project. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I, um, and I, I call myself a disciple of Tammy Faye. I mean, there's many people who are, I guess. Nice. Um, all kinds of different people. Um, but I'm lucky enough to be working on a quite a big project about her at the moment, um, which reflects on, apart from being kind of just a biography of her life, it reflects on this idea that maybe there's been a bit of a second coming of Tammy Faye within the culture. Mm. Uh, there's been uh, a musical by Elton John, um, uh, a movie that won two Oscars uh, about Tammy and yeah, I mean, it, it, Jay and I had been wanting to work on something for a long time, and we'd been wondering what it says about contemporary culture that there's kind of this yearning for a figure like Tammy. So that's sort of what we're trying to answer as well in the in the film we're making. Okay, wow. Okay, so I, I, I definitely want to go there in just one second if we can. But before we kind of uh, circle around Tammy Faye and everything you think about mm-hmm. her, w- would you mind just uh, giving a brief 
sort of sketch of kind of who you are and what you're up to, like what your project's about, and mm-hmm. then we can kind of jump into the questions? Great. Uh, so I'm a filmmaker, um, but I also have sort of been dragged into kind of maybe the like thoughts and ideas space as well, I which that. I didn't really like think <laughs> I would be, but I guess I have friends who are um I don't know, philosophers and that kind of thing. And I like to philosophize a bit, um, <laughs> probably like the sound of my voice a bit too much. Um, I'm always sort of like battling, like oh, I just want to be making films. And then like, I like going on and like having these deep dive conversations on podcasts and things. And nice. I actually um, was uh, making um, some films with a good friend of mine a few years ago, Adrian Romero. He's a musician and um, we had lots of ideas and thoughts and all this kind of stuff. And we had this sort of idea that like, um, not much of uh, what is um, in the public domain is actually sort of like a truly public conversation because mm. we have this kind of weird um, infiltration of the idea of the public. Like what we think of as public is like anything that happens, you know, in the presence of people that aren't from our own like family or friendship unit or whatever. Right. But actually, that's not really necessarily the case because they're all sort of like corporate interests that get involved, you know, with social media and stuff and. Um, there's ways that we have to, you know, protect our brand and we have to, we're never really outside of the economic system that, mm. that kind of surrounds us. So it's really hard often to have like really honest and open conversations and therefore even get to the point of understanding what you actually think. So we had this idea with this podcast we set up, um, when was it, like four years ago, that our conversations would be like an attempt at a public conversation about we were both interested in psychoanalysis and okay um i've been working with peter for a long time peter rollins and he was interested in pete's work so this idea of like radical theology and um we wanted to have these conversations where we could find out because you know i mean i guess you do this with therapy it's like it's quite hard for people to know themselves oh yeah when they're not in the presence of another person to sort of like bounce off the other person their ideas and thoughts and have them mirrored back to themselves absolutely and we kind of yeah so this idea of having like a public conversation, I mean, selfishly, you you, you do find out about yourself and what you mm. think, but then that kind of like um, started sort of, uh, you know, more podcasts and meeting more people and writing all that kind of stuff, which I didn't really think I'd be involved in, but I have a little bit. <laughs> there <of> you it. <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and then you have this wonderful Substack. Uh, I read several of the pieces. Um, oh, cool. Is it the Dialectical Materialist Girl? Am I getting that's that right? It. Okay. Yeah, okay. that's right. Yeah, very actually, good stuff. Um, I have a podcast now, another podcast called The Lack. Yeah, I listened to a few episodes. Um, Wonderful. Right, I love that y'all with, talked um, about Severance, which is one of my favorite shows. <laughs> did you? Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I know we, um, it's with a, a political theorist and a philosopher. So we all have like slightly different positions. Yes. Um, and we take like a film or a work of art each episode and like analyze it from our different perspectives and have a kind of a discussion. So those, um on my Substack, I actually this is when I like started the podcast and was really keen and I like wrote something every time but then you kind of come to quickly come to the conclusion that like no one has time to write an essay for every single podcast you <laughs> so I had like maybe I don't know how many there are like 15 or something up there maybe when the the first episodes if you go back to the lack now I just like write some thoughts on my notes app okay talk about that. but I did used to write something so then I was like why well, better put them somewhere so they put them on the substack uh, that makes sense no but i like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> so do, do, do you think it's a good time to 
because okay, so I, I had at least like these three strands in your work that I think are all connected yeah. that I really wanted to explore, and the, the 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 first one being you know Tammy Faye and, and what you were just talking about that that maybe there's a second coming, right? That there's this mm-hmm. uh, cultural moment maybe where people are reflecting on her and talking about her and just thinking about her work. I, I wonder if you could explore why you think that is. What, what is it about the conditions we're in? that makes her this, you know, attractive figure at the moment for so many. Yeah, I guess it kind of like, yeah, I guess it it ties back a bit to what we were saying about having conversations. Okay. Um, And obviously, you know, there's like this, this like plethora of podcasts and chat shows and stuff, but it's like, do we really in today's society get to the heart of, uh, or get to be able to talk to people from who have different perspectives, or are we really siloed? Are we just fed back by the via the algorithm what we already think, and do we have just conversations with people who we already agree with? Um, you know, d- d- sort of like there's almost this sort of received automatic idea of what a media product is going to say because of mm. who made it and where it comes from. So there's there's very much like the internet, um, whilst it had this or has this potentially like radical openness radical potentiality we have sort of through the internet found ourselves more and more and more siloed off and this is also maybe because of um the uh the economic system when it gets kind of out of hand um it has to sort of like create um well this is sort of a, a complicated thing to get into but one of the symptoms is maybe that there are um, big economic problems that need to be dealt with on a collective level, but it's so difficult for us to stomach that we'd rather um, maybe create enemies who we can imagine mm. uh, behind this pesky person who doesn't think like me, we could have a, a better society. So we sort of, um, the cultural war starts to get um, heated up when things in society are really, really difficult to face. So we're in quite a like divisional time. And Tammy is one of these people who has this ability well a the, the range of people who are interested in Tammy says something about Tammy she's somebody who's able to um unify you know conservative christians maybe people who are from a, like a republican background you know she had the respect in the end i'm sure of the christian community even though she was sort of cancelled in effect by right. the members of the christian community yeah. but also you know um trans activists and the queer community also um adore her and she's somebody who's able to unify these groups that in society today we see seem to feel that there's like an irreconcilable difference Mm. but there's something in her humanity in her openness in the risk-taking of her non-puritanical very open very you know it's, it's a real risk to be as open as she did and she really suffered for it yeah but there's something about her that unifies us and it speaks to, you know, she, she was very, very, I mean, if the funny thing is, is you can like talk about Tammy forever. So it was like, um, we were talking about this yesterday, we were doing an interview actually about this idea that Tammy's almost like one of these great works of art mm. that you're never going to get to the core of. <laughs> you can just talk, you know, you say one thing, so, you know, she's, she was absolutely caked in makeup and dressed like a drag queen or whatever, but she's the most authentic person in a way, like the makeup allowed her to be more authentic. So she's very like, got this defensive mask in a way, but the mask is more revealing. You know, yes. she, she was accused of being like extremely decadent and frivolous, but she also was somebody who was obsessed with finding bargains. And we actually went to her <laughs> archive in North Carolina and 
had lots of her jewelry was like um, a ring that was like a cut out circle of a piece of cardboard with rhinestones glued onto it, and she was oh, excu- wow. you know accused of like taking millions from all these people that you know she re- she actually put eight million dollars of her own record sales back into the um, PTL Heritage Ministry, even though her salary was like her and her husband's salary over the years was half that amount. So, I mean, it's like none of it adds up, but the point being is that like, you can just talk about her endlessly. And this is, there's something very like universal and truthful about this fact. Mm. It's that we're all like that. We're all mysteries. We all, you know, kind of go on forever and can't be defined and um, are uncharacter, uh, uh, categorizable in some way. There's something about being a human subject that, is beyond language, is beyond the ability to to put into boxes and to neatly say, I'm of this group, I'm of this identity. And Tambi just sort of explodes those identity categories. So there's something that's appealing to everybody in her. And I think at this time where, you know, we might libidinally want to sort of like cancel everybody or say that this person's the enemy. If sure. only they didn't have these political views, then we'd have a great society. I think we kind of know that that's not the right approach to deep down. Mm. And Tammy really speaks to this. And it's, you know, not to be like too corny about it. Obviously, this (laughs) is, you know, what the Jesus figure was able to do with this sort of unifying Jew and Gentile. You know, Mm. she's able to unify. Um, And it's interesting, like even with this documentary. So I'm working on this uh, documentary with Jay and we've interviewed all kinds of different people we have from, um, you know, religious figures who today I think a lot of people would think are kind of like, very right wing and out there to drag queens and queer activists and you know people who are really important in like the AIDS justice movements and stuff like that. So all these people adore Tammy mm. and you know want to want to keep talking about her. So yeah. Oh man, no, I could sit and just listen to you talk for hours. That's that's incredible. I, I cannot wait until it comes out. So it's just going to be exploring all those marvelous themes. Yeah, so it's basically it's like a it's a four part series, and okay. it's um, looking at you know her birth to her death and resurrection. Oh wow! But not only that, looking at what her life says about society, what it says about America, what it says about contemporary the contemporary world. Sure. Okay, yeah. I don't remember exactly what you titled it. Maybe a figure of American contradiction, but in your Substack, you you have this marvelous piece on her. And I just wanted to kind of read a couple things you wrote and just kind of hear your reflection. Um, I, I think one of the things we probably have in common, although I'm really a novice, I, I, I'm not an analyst. I'm a, I'm actually a feminist kind of psychotherapist. I use this model called relational cultural theory uh, in mm-hmm. my psychotherapy, and I work almost exclusively with men, which is kind of an interesting contradiction. But um, yeah. so, so I'm definitely not a Lacanian, but I would say that Lacanian thought really influences my thinking. And I'm a huge fan of Hegel, so I, I guess I add that caveat to say I'm I'm understanding those categories that I want to ask you about, but but I need to kind of sit at your feet and really understand. Like I need you to help me understand what they really mean. I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, so at, at one point you write that that she's the signifier of the lack in the big other. I don't know if yeah, you remember writing okay. that, but I'm curious what, what you meant this. by that. Like, I don't know why I. Oh, yeah, I think this. I wrote it because um, it was about. I think it was when the the Hollywood movie with Jessica Chastain was coming out. Okay, and it was like, what is it about? Oh yeah, I'd watched it. Yeah, I had watched the movie when it just came out, and it's interesting because like all these different cultural takes on her, you know, they have a different perspective. And what I really got from that movie that was so interesting was so 
it focused a lot on um the rise so she she had this ministry with her husband called ptl and they also yeah. had like a um a religious theme park called heritage usa and this was an just like an extraordinarily successful ministry to the point where it kind of defied all logic within the kind of um economic system that existed and you know there there were I mean, sadly, Jim Jim lost his ministry and, and was went sent to prison for forty five years. Yeah, that's fucking crazy. Um, it's, it's, it, it is crazy, and it says something about the society at the time that this was allowed to happen, given that what he was accused of he he did not have control of the books. Mm. I mean, this was a religious ministry, so it didn't pay tax. But on the other hand, you know, there was a huge amount of good works being done, so much money being poured into this massive, um, you know, place. And in a way, he was accused of being a sort of crazy capitalist, but he wasn't selfish enough to be a capitalist. Mm. You know, this was, this was, he had this vision, he truly believed in God, and he was trying to recreate um, a sort of 1950s version of America, a sort of clean living world, which also ties into some some things that he went through in his life as, as a child and almost like this trauma that he went through where he wanted to freeze time in that time where things happened. But anyway, that's another story. Um, and, you know, also I've said about their salaries, they're accused of having these massive salaries, but sure. actually if you, you do the calculations in terms of what they put back into the ministry, you know, they would be much better off never taking a salary and, you know, having their the their books and and cd sale um, not cd vinyl sales and things like that um because they made they were very very successful um with that but um in the movie she the way that tammy is um is expressed is is sort of um portrayed during this time of the the rise of this ministry is like she has this great sense of antagonism and disquiet in her she's extremely anxious mm. so she knows it's as if she knows deep down not consciously but you know within her very bones that something's not right and actually that the fall of the ministry in 1987 you know it's this bubbling kind of issues happening and there's something that's been covered up that's about to re-emerge um, from 1980 it's about to be re-emerged in 1987 and it all starts in 1987 like things start to crumble when she gets a cold but her health is already really really bad jim is a workaholic he's extremely dedicated to this vision of god and she, you know, she likes the ministry and what have you, but she just sort of wants to raise her children and have a more quiet life. Sure. And she's sort of going along with this ministry and she, they break ground on this new building at Heritage and she's not wearing enough clothes. She gets ill. And then it turns out at the same time, she's, she's taking so much, um, Avitan. And um, when she, you know, she eventually gets ill and this leads to sort of her collapsing and they discover she's got enough in there. She's a tiny woman, like 80 pounds, like tiny. You know, it could kill her, as she says in um, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, the documentary by World of Wonder, it could kill a truck driver. Right. So she's, and she's hallucinating. She has all, she's taking huge amounts of, uh, well, she she chooses the good Aspergum, which I don't think exists anymore, which is like aspirin chewing gum. And she's like really <laughs> addicted, to like painkillers and, and anti-anxiety medication. But there's something in her where she is like, her body represents the downside of what's going on. Gotcha. So in, you know, the idea of the big other in, in sort of Lacan or in psychoanalysis is this idea that there's some other out there who's holding, and this is, this is the problem with our society today. And it's the problem with, it's not exclusive to sort of capitalism. This, this is like a universal kind of human tendency. Sure.
stringently and only and we can overcome this mess, mess and difficulty because like how could the world be so shit you know right <laughs> and so we imagine that there's somebody out there who is uncastrated so mm. who hasn't experienced the lack or the loss that we feel so we might think that the crazy capitalist is just out there enjoying when really the fact that they have to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate speaks to the fact that maybe they're suffering as well and this system isn't really fixing them and they're looking for something that's going to fill their sort of existential void. Or that there's some God out there that isn't divided, but that has all the answers. Mm. There's some commodity, there's some person, there's somebody we can be jealous of. There's, so we we feel that there is somebody out there that's whole and complete and perfect. But Tammy, and I feel like in that movie, it was represented in the anxiety she felt in this very successful ministry before all the shit had gone down. She was already feeling the antagonism and in her sort of like crazy makeup as well, which becomes more and more and more um, thick, the more anxious she is, you know, that she's sort of as kind of this, this fame and fortune and this success quote unquote, and this like glorifying of God that her husband's doing, it's not making her happy. And she's very open about it. Like it's right there on the surface. Even if she she's not consciously open about it, it's just there. Right. And there's something about it in her that she's not like um, a lot of other celebrities who maybe, especially today, you know, there's this idea of like, oh, I airing your dirty laundry and being honest. But sure. is it really honest? Or is this a sort of commoditized version of like showing your suffering where you're saying like, I'm a victim and therefore, you know, so it's sort of like, mm. I can't be, I've experienced this, so I have to be treated in a different way and this makes me unique or you have an identity signifier that makes you more valuable or you can, um, you know, it, this sort of version of um, diversity politics, which basically concretizes the problem rather than is the solution that it purports, because we haven't quite got to the bottom of how this works. Whilst these things are good and can be well-intentioned, they can sometimes be this sort of like flip where, the 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 lack or the um the problem becomes a commoditized solution so yes. it's like you know i might have something that's happened to me that means that i have something some truth um about the world that i can tell you about so it becomes a total rather than a loss mm. maybe i'm not making that much sense but tammy doesn't doesn't do this it's just there you know <laughs> she's just there it's raw you know and she she one of the things about her that's so attractive is, is her openness to everybody. You know, we yes. all of us wish that we could be like that. You know, I wish I could be more more like Tammy. But it's not like, you know, you might say something like the the um what do you call it? Self-optimization, right? Mm. Or or self-hacking or like stoicism where you're like, I'm becoming a better person and right. this is gonna make me a faster runner and slimmer and all this kind of stuff. It's something that's like a great trait, her openness that was absolutely not very good for her at all. You know, she died very young, really, in her early 60s. She died, she suffered with cancer for years. You know, she really felt anxious because she was so open to people. And it's not like she's, it's not like she's saying, like, this is going to be easy. (laughs) Right. It's like, and I think often what we have now is sort of like, you know, you get on your Instagram, your infographic, that's like, here's 10 ways how being more open to other people will give you a longer life or something oh, yeah. like that. It's like, so this is, you know, it's the ways of turning these things that can be good into something that actually sustains the problem. Um, and she's just, she's just radically open and she really suffered for it. Mm. Wow. 
Wow. You know, one of the things that, that you have, have written about, I think, on, on social media and in that article on Tammy Faye that just so resonated with me, but it's one of the most difficult things for me to do. It's one thing that I really struggle with is you said she's someone who took the contradictions of life but didn't create oppositions. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I wondered if you could reflect on that because I think <laughs> right there, that's to me probably the thing I'm most drawn to her around is is her ability to just kind of hold the contradictions or maybe embody them but not create these oppositions because I struggle with that. I, I, I'm tempted to create the oppositions and scapegoat and enemies. Even though I don't want to ideologically, I still do it. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do well, you think about thing. that? It's, it's really hard. And I think the yeah. thing is as well that it's not like a moral question of like, oh, the person who's able to do this is a better person. Because mm. we think about the world around us and material conditions. Like life is hard for so many people. It's right really now. fucking like, hard. It's so hard. And, you know, often it's very easy to think, you know, when we're in this world of social media, to think I'm the only person that it's hard for. But it's hard for everybody. And the harder it is, the more likely it is for us to want to have easier answers. Mm. And you see this, you know, like in the rise of fascism in the, you know, early to mid 20th century in Europe. This was a time, for example, in Germany, where they'd lost uh, World War One. They were completely blamed for it in the Treaty of Versailles. They had to accept these terms. Right. They were huge reparations were put on them. They couldn't afford to pay. Their uh, industrial lands were taken away. Their army was cut down. When all the other societies around them, you know, were, this there was hyperinflation. This was a country that was extremely humiliated and extremely poor. And the ultimate oppositional ideology is fascism, right? Which is like we can have. Like the, the difficulties of life aren't because of life as such and complex reasons and this history that our country's gone through, but rather it's because of one specific group. And if it wasn't for this group, we'd have a utopia. Mm. It's much, it's very tempting for us to fall into this logic. And obviously, I mean, I, that's a very, very concrete example at sure. one period of time. This isn't to excuse it, but you can see how the worse and the more difficult the material conditions are, the more likely we are to seek um comfort in the idea that if it wasn't for this one thing then the world would be perfect and the trouble is you know the society that we live in sort of sells us this idea that we don't come from antagonism that you know we aren't created by the big bang that the world like you can't have light without dark you can't have one without zero you can't have yes without no you can't have a word itself without the the space that surrounds the word right so and, you know, at the end of the day, the tragedy is that we do all die. And obviously there's, there's better ways Wait, to what? live whilst no, you I'm live. No, I'm just kidding. I know. No, but it's true. It's <laughs> Helen, how, how could you say that? No. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, and obviously this is just, you know, we should make the most of our life while we live it. And I think there are ways that we can get to understanding the world to, to make the most of the world that we have while we, while we live in it. Um, but this avoidance, you know, often create, creates a situation where it is worse and it's worse for some people more than others. But, you know, there's this idea as well that, you know, uh, there's this Irish saying, this famous Irish comedian has said it, it's called Dylan Moran, and he says, war isn't conflict, it's the inability to have conflict. Yes. So conflict being, you know, tarrying with the difficulties of life, and we all have different desires, and we all have different paths, and we, you know, have different experiences, but we have to somehow come to existing with other people in the world. 
And when we aren't able to do that, this is where we escalate to war. And in war, we, you know, it gets to the point where we believe that if we can get rid of this other perspective, then things would be better. But there's always going to be other perspectives. There's always going to be different ways of seeing things because we are all, we, we are all because we speak we all are lacking subjects. We're not part. If, if we were, if speech is only is the result of the fact that we can't really communicate very well. Yeah. If we were able to just sort of like, um, so I mean, the example Peter uses this all the time. So this is one of his. But he um, was a slow speaker as a child. Mm. Um, so he was sort of three or four, and his parents were getting really worried. He hadn't really learned to speak. So <laughs> they got the. Um, speech therapist in or whatever to the house and she was sort of working out what was happening and what was actually happening was that Pete as a sort of child had recruited his older sister Ah. to do things for him and to get things for him so he could point to something and she would just go and get it which meant he never had to learn to speak Mm. so it's almost because he was too good at communicating he never had to speak got you so the point being is the fact that we all speak it means that we're not very good at communicating there was some point of frustration in the first place that meant that we had to learn to speak oh yeah so we're all coming from this lacking position, which means we all don't have this totalizing view of reality. We've all got a different way of seeing things. And unless we're able to tarry with that difference, we we come to escalate things. But the oppositional thinking is sort of this utopian thinking where you can imagine that if only it wasn't for this group, this thought, this idea, then the world would be perfect. But often what happens is that enemy is sustaining a fantasy of perfection Mm. that you would rather keep the fantasy and live in shit and keep the fantasy (laughs) than realize the fantasy is not real and work to make the shit better. Mm. It's sometimes easier to have the enemy where you can think at least, you know, this world that I can imagine in the shadow cast behind them is better than the reality now. And you might not be able to get the fantasy you know, the fantasy, so the fantasy is never real. It, it requires that person to right. be in the way so that you never get it. Because if you got it, you'd realize, oh, it's just the same old shit. Yeah, but yeah. What you can it's not satisfying. Do, it's not satisfying. It's not satisfying. But what you can do is realize that we're in this world. We have one go at it. It's not going to be perfect. It's not, there's not this sort of utopian world that exists precisely because of the logic. You know, if you go into the logic, I mean, you'd have to sort of really talk about it for hours to get to this point. But <laughs> if you go through the logic of the way we speak, the way our subjectivity is structured and the reality of the world. And this is a very Hegelian point. The world itself is divided. The world itself is broken and it only exists because of this brokenness. And this is sort of what the Big Bang shows us in a way. But if we can get to a point of being okay with that and accepting it on its terms, maybe we can make something better. I don't know. Yeah. With what we've got. A hundred percent, Helen. Are are you a fan of uh, Todd McGowan? at all yes I am. Oh, okay you know he's <laughs> yeah. maybe the most influential thinker for me at the moment i'm, ac- I'm actually going to yeah. have him on the podcast later this week but uh I, in our previous conversation we were discussing his book on hegel and i, I guess the way yeah. we framed it was and this is what i always tell my clients because i i kind of <laughs> sometimes joke that even though they don't use this language clients come to me and basically are asking me to resolve their contradictions or to erase their contradictions and I just really resonate with McGowan and Hegel's idea that it's about reconciling ourselves to the contradiction. It's tearing with the contradiction, mm-hmm. not trying to resolve it, because that's not possible. It, I, exactly. In, in fact, I think what I see in therapy is people creating havoc in their life 
with all the strategies they use to try to re- or to try to deal with the contradiction or resolve the contradiction. It's when they can kind of yeah tarry with it or reconcile themselves to it that they experience some type of you know I don't believe in real like full fulfillment, but some type of you know satisfaction. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so yeah, Todd uses the word satisfaction a lot, and Freud uses the word ordinary unhappiness. Oh, absolutely. Julia Christa- yeah, yeah, and Julia Christie uses t- this term like oh, I can't. I actually can't remember. It's something about, it's like, it's something like ordinary transcendence, but it's not that. It's like, there is a something transcendent, but it's not magic. You know, right. it's, it's life itself. But, you know, in terms of what you're saying about like trying to resolve the contradiction and then just making your life worse, it's like another example of this sort of object. You know, life's going to be perfect as long as you get it. Well, the thing is, it never is. And if you got it, you'd be bored and melancholic and you'd realize it's just the same shit. Right. But it's sometimes more soothing to imagine that there is this perfect world out there than to, well, to either get it, which is a disaster, or or to realize that it doesn't exist in the world at all. And so you shoot yourself in the foot Mm. in order to sustain the not getting. Mm. So... You might, for instance, there's a, there's a girl. It was actually very sad. This Olympic. We don't have many of them. We don't have many from the UK um, people who compete in the Winter Olympics. Okay. But it was a girl who did speed skating. Mm. I can't remember her name, but there was this sort of. Um, she was like between the Olympics. She was like world champion, world record holder, and easy, 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 easy. Got all the gold medals. Got all the records. But then when it came to the Olympics, every single year, and this happened at multiple Olympics, every single race. She crashed out. She didn't make it. She there was some kind of problem, and this is you know I don't want to psychoanalytically diagnose it, but this could be an example of somebody for whom an Olympic gold medal, even though technically, you know, she was the favourite. It could be a walk in a park in the park for her. Sure. And I'm not saying this is actually the case, but this is just an example of what could be happening. Yeah. Maybe she was imagining that the gold medal was the thing, the elusive thing that was missing, that if she got, her life would be perfect. And so she had to keep not getting it because if she did get it, she would realize that that whole fantasy... And often there is a phenomenon of people going to the Olympics and right after that, in this sort of four-year cycle, falling into deep depression. Mm. Because once you've done it, once you've got the gold medal, you realize it's nothing. there's There's no magic thing to it. You know, it might be nice and it's a nice accomplishment, but the way that humans invest in things, you know, it's not like we think, oh, this is a cup of coffee. I'm going to drink a cup of coffee. Isn't this nice? Great. I'm satisfied. It's like this one thing I'm missing. And if I got it, I'd get the recognition of everybody in the world. And I would be saved from the, the boring and difficult elements of life. And I'll be remembered forever and my life will be different. Right. <laughs> you know, we can do it with anything. We can do it with but people do it a lot in relationships, obviously. Mm. I mean, you must know this is a oh, sure. do it with looking for the magical other. Exactly. That can complete in cars or houses or qualifications. But this is where, as you said, like we can we can still go after you can't give up on what you desire and what you want. Right. You can actually make it easier for yourself to get it if you realize it's not going to be the be all and end all magical solution sure sure so you can have it without the magic but you can have it more easily if you don't imagine it to be magic yeah no i i almost hesitate to say this because i know it sounds kind of cliche but it's the whole idea that you can finally discover happiness when you stop looking for it 
kind of you know yeah. when, when you when you're just obsessed with trying to find it and i don't even know if i really believe in it but you know the moment though that you're mm-hmm. like i don't know that it really exists and i'm going to kind of like calm down a little bit and not <laughs> ravenously pursue it then maybe it'll come <laughs> in, in a type yeah. of you know tolerable dissatisfaction <laughs> exactly exactly i mean i think yeah I mean, I don't know if it's right, but I, that's what I think as well. Okay, yeah. <laughs> as in, like, this is what I talk about all the time. So <laughs> I think there's something to it. But I, I, I guess the point that I mean is like uh, this. Also, I think if people think it's going to be a magical solution to do this, also Correct. it won't work. You know, yes, <laughs> it's like yes. You know, people can be like, I'm so accepting of reality as it is. <laughs> yeah, like, like I, I have foundly like, reconciled know. myself to the lack. And, and, yeah. you know, and everything's going to be okay now. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> but also, but this is the thing I think I was talking about earlier is that like any kind of the lack, quote unquote, can, can, be, can be commoditized as well. But sure. what it ends up being is like a contingent loss. So often mm. you'll see this on social media where people will air their dirty laundry and it sounds like it's a public, you know, for, it, it, it seems on one level a public thing. But actually when you realize that it's a way that sometimes people are encouraged you know you see it in adverts all the time where there's there's a a person that's presented that um from like maybe a former ideological version of a like a a a person or somebody you'd see in ads isn't that Mm. but the isn't that basically becomes um ideologically somebody who possesses something more like knowledge of what it's like you know so you might not be claudia schiffer but you know something about authenticity that other people can learn from you. That's so good. So then it becomes the same thing. And there's actually, there's a really big um, YouTube, uh, Instagram account actually about this girl who was plucked from obscurity from her sort of like honest rant about something. She got millions of followers and what it's now become is like uh, a promise that there's fulfillment in authenticity but she's just selling authenticity, you know, right. by being like, oh, I just don't brush, brush my hair in the morning. And I, you know, who cares as if that's where fulfillment is. But it's actually, there's no magic in that either, mm. you know, and it could be like a perform, you know, who's to say it's not a performance of extension. <laughs> so right. it becomes, it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's an, uh, coming to an okayness, you know, in every dimension. And I feel like the market system we live in is very good at, and Todd talks about this in Captain as in desire in terms of like the sexual revolution, whereas this idea of like, oh, as soon as we liberate ourselves sexually, then capitalism is over. But then what happens is capitalized cap- capitalism capitalizes on the lack of repression. Oh yeah. And it sex becomes the thing that the commodity that sells. So, you know, we have this authenticity trap, maybe, where it's like yes. and then you're like, what does authenticity even mean? Am I exposing myself enough? Am I I even feel this as a this pressure in in sort of creative field where you're like, Okay, you know, have I you you feel this pressure to expose yourself or I'm the kind of person who can say this because I'm this or I went through this trauma or whatever. And it's all very well speaking honestly, but it it too can become a trap, you know, in a way to mystify what's really going on in terms of how we exploit ourselves, how we generate value for other people and this kind of stuff. So yeah, everything, everything has to be done. I guess and even I mean this has to be, but you know, with, with this sort of humility. And I see this, you know, you see this in science, like the way science there's a mm. really good piece in Sublation magazine recently about um 
the dialectical materialism of science. But okay. you know, when you when you do a scientific experiment, there's a whole history of science behind you. But the only thing that really works, you can only come to meeting reality when it is, when where it is where you you accept that you don't know. Mm. You know, you can't go into the scientific experiment with any suppositions because that will influence the experiment sure. itself. So you have to let it play out to you and then come to an understanding. Yeah. And so, yeah, science is the way that humans have, it's actually amazing how humans have been able to do this, given the nature of our subjectivity, given the difficulties of the world, that we've actually come to understand the world in some ways and that we'll still come to understand it more with this ability to open ourselves up through the scientific experiment, like the double blind is a way to, right. like technology to allow this kind of openness to reality to play out without the sort of, as soon as you desire to come to a conclusion, a foregone conclusion, that's not science anymore. You right. know? So, so there are sort of ways that we can see this technology play. And it's funny because people say that like quantum science proves that Hegel was right before his time. But I actually think that just the basic double blind um, scientific experiment is an example of Hegelian logic in action. Mm. Can you say a little bit more about that? <laughs> yes, so, so <laughs> that sounds awesome. So, yeah, I mean, like, so, okay, well, how do I explain this? So, okay, within Hegel, there's this idea of the owl of Minerva flies at dusk. Yes. Like, the world has unfolded in a certain way, and we can understand certain things about it, but we don't know for sure where it's going. Sure. Because there's always this contradiction, this potentiality in the world. Mm. We cannot, you know, as soon as we think we know that's some kind of like that, that's some kind of magical thinking. Do you, do you think, can I pause you real quick? Uh, yeah. Not that it has to be connected to any type of theology, but do you think that's what Paul was getting at when he talked about we see through a ga- glass darkly? Could, yeah, I, could, I think so. Could that be yeah, a Hegelian moment? I think, moment? That's, I think okay. that's absolutely, I okay. think that's absolutely right. And obviously, we can, if we've used technology, science to build a model, based on this insight of not knowing, right? then we might be able to predict something very, very accurately. But also, we it's never total. We can mm. never be guaranteed. So when we do a scientific experiment to add to the sum of scientific knowledge, we might have these things we've double-blinded up to that point, which we proved beyond doubt that sure. this is the way it works, quote-unquote. Then we can do another experiment and build on scientific on the sum of scientific knowledge by not deciding the way that the owl of Minerva is going to fly. <laughs> and it's only then in waiting for the world to present itself in this way by creating kind of a, you know, you know, we, I haven't done science since I was like 15 years old, so what do I know? But, you know, like you do the experiment <laughs> at high school where it's like, what conditions have you done to make sure you're not tampering with you? Right. Know, how is this? There? I don't even know what the, so some science teacher will be able to tell tell us, maybe tell us me. But um but the way that it works, the way we get information is by not coming with these absolutes, by opening ourselves up to the contradiction of the world showing itself to us. So yeah, and I think that, you know, so so people maybe this idea of you know we've got quantum physics and stuff again, right. this is totally out of my wheelhouse and I'm sorry apologies to any scientists <laughs> you know, this idea that 
quantum reality is uh, is divided right. is contradictory and this shows that hegel's insight about the contradiction at the heart of reality but the fact is that we've only been able to come to this point of understanding by realizing that the world is elusive that it's not total but we can't you know just because we've judged that you know at one point we thought that matter was one way it doesn't mean you know in order to get to the knowledge that it isn't we've had to understand that that's just what we've that's just how we've come to understand at that point but to get to the next point we've had to open ourselves up to reality again so humans have been capable of this kind of logic for a long time there's this sort of idea that the um the modern subject is more sophisticated and knows more than and sure. it's true in some ways you know because the, the way that technology has developed and we have more access to greater things at our fingertips but humans have been able to do this for a long time and that's how we've got to the point of where we are today which yes. is really quite impressive but anyway i don't know anything about science so <laughs> <laughs> I, I know i know even less but i'm really resonating with what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> now so okay helen do you think it'd be a good time to transition into this short film that you created? And yeah. I'm assuming this is a part of the the point. I don't know if it's all one or alone. I'm not sure how to pronounce yeah. it. It's A-L-L-O-N-E, which I thought was actually kind of brilliant. It's this, uh, it's set in pre-Christian Ireland and it kind of is a interpretation of a Buddhist parable. I, I was wondering right, if you could yeah. just maybe like set it up and maybe... The, the background of, of why you kind of worked on that and what, what you think the big idea in the movie is. Yeah. Cause I just thought it was yeah. fucking brilliant and just beautiful <laughs> and powerful. I loved it. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to share it with it with my clients. Cause I think, I think they need to kind of wrestle with it. Yeah. So it, I guess you, we, I would say it's alone, but it's okay. supposed to be a, a word that kind of encapsulates alone or one all alone all at the same time. Got you. So, um, I would just a background to where I heard about this. So I was actually um, with with Pete in LA at okay. Rob Bell's house, and they were recording a podcast. I think they did like a four part podcast on God or something, mm. and they were just discussing things. And this parable came up, and I think Pete recounted this parable as it is, you know, more or less in the sort of Buddhist parable. And I was like, oh my god, this is this is like the perfect film, and uh, we have to make it in Irish because. Um, there's something about um, the Irish tradition and Irish language and Irish storytelling that kind of resonates with this. There's sort of something universal in it. In that, you know, if you watch an Irish, Freud has this. This is not like this is this didn't actually happen, but there was this idea that he had said that the only um, you know nation of people that can't be psychoanalyzed are Irish people. Really? Because yeah, the idea is that they've already come to the insight of like life is shit and there's nothing you can do. <laughs> anyway, so, um, Anyway, so but the but the fact is that there is something. I mean, the Irish landscape is like beautiful, but also very can be quite harsh and dark and mm. has sort of like ethereal quality to it. Um, you know, the history of Ireland, as well as really, there's been a lot of suffering here. Mm. Um, you know, this is a crazy statistic. So um, I actually can't remember the exact statistics, but I was looking at it the other day. So the population of Ireland before the um, before the potato famine was nearly the same as that of England. And we're now nearly 150 years, actually probably more than 150 years. Actually, don't don't quote me either way. Over 150 <laughs> years since the potato famine. 
and the population of Ireland, it's like 1.8 in Northern Ireland and like five or so in the Republic of Ireland. And England is like 60. Wow. So, yeah, it's been, and so Ireland is a fascinating place on, on so many different levels and people are drawn to it for so many different reasons, but there is something within the kind of like culture and the spirit and whatever that's quite, um, that recognizes its own division. And even, I mean, I don't speak Irish, but we did um, the film in Irish and um, a really good friend of mine, Maureen, was the lead actress and she she grew up with Irish and she's fantastic. Oh, she was great. Person. And yeah, and there's something in, you know, I did a few evening classes just to familiarize myself a little bit, but there's something in um, the Irish language that has a very like collective sort of mm. um, quality to it. So um, in English, we when we talk about, well, it just, for instance, if you if you talk about something like a school or a hospital or a bus or something in Irish, the word refer, refers to all the people in it. Okay. So a hospital would be ah. like a place full of patients or like a bus is a place full of passengers. Mm. So it really like reflects the sort of collectivity. Gotcha. Um, and even the way that, uh, you know, the, the I mean, again, I, I do have a languages background. That's why I'm like interested. I used to be a languages teacher, so it's why oh, I'm okay. interested in it, but I don't know much about here I am talking about something I don't know about again. So, <laughs> but like even the way that pronouns are used, like even this political party Sinn Féin, we ourselves, there's something like mm. there's this kind of collective idea in it. So um, this film is about the collective experience of black, this indelible collective experience of black and how recognizing that death is part of life and that everybody suffers. It's not that, you know, maybe today we have suffering that, I imagine I can suffer. And then this sort of like weird therapy culture promises you that you can get over the suffering or this person suffers and they have, they've gone through something, some suffering and they have an answer to me about how I can live a better life because they've got some lesson for me. The insight of this film is kind of the opposite. It's like, mm. we are all divided. We've all lost, but this is how we can recognize ourselves in the other and how we can um, experience community. And in the long term, build something more destructive. Destructive, sorry, constructive. That was an interesting Freudian slip. <laughs> that was Freudian slip. I know what does that say? In, <laughs> oh, shit. Um, <laughs> um, in the presence of other people. So in this film, it's a woman who has a very is slightly different to the Buddhist parable. I sort of changed it a little bit, but not that much. But um, sure. she she has a, a child that's really really ill, and she's alone. She's on her own with her and her child, and she goes out to. Um, try to find something that will cure it and she goes to various witch doctors and they give her potions and she um travels the land searching for some solution and um she doesn't find anything and her baby's nearly dead and she she meets a woman on her way across sort of this irish kind of landscape and the woman says that there's a woman a a, a person a, a another sort of um witch type figure who lives high up on the mountain and only she'll be able to help her and um so the lady goes, the young woman goes, and on the way her child dies and she's absolutely distraught. She arrives at this woman at the top of the mountain and the woman says, oh, no, I am able to help you. Mm. If, and um, if you can find um, a special kind of black seed, mustard seed, um, and make a tea out of it and fill it um, and uh, feed it to your child, then the child, you know, you, you'll get what you what you need, what, you, what you're seeking. And so... Um, but the, the catch is that um, the seeds have to come from 
a house that hasn't been touched by the black son of loss, which she has experienced with her, with her own baby. So she goes into the community and she goes to all these different people, these different houses and asks for the seeds. And they have the seeds, many of them have the seeds, but, you know, every single person has lost somebody or gone through something traumatic, like the black son of suffering has touched their lives. And through this experience, she's able to come to understand that life is marked by death, that we all experience death and that we all lose something. And we're all sort of marked by this lag. And in this sort of connection with the community, she's able to come to bury her child. So Mm. she wasn't able to face the tragic loss without this community of people around her. Yeah. And then she's able to sort of bury her child. So it's not the most um, (laughs) uplifting thing, but the uplifting thing is that she's able to, but it's only through, you know, what I kind of really liked about the parable when I heard it was it's not just that, oh, you're just supposed to accept it. Because because we're humans, you know, we do think in these ways, we do invest in fantasy and promises and we do hope for things and we can't just be like, without sit, I'm accepting it. You know, we have to maybe go on a journey. Yes. Go after something to then realise that it's not worth it. Like you can't just take away from, you know, it's it's easy to say to a young person, don't bother trying to be a famous actor. It's never going to happen. Actually, the going after the desire to do it is something that's meaningful and important. And Fuck maybe yes. they'll become the actor and they'll realize it's not that great or they <laughs> won't. And they've done something amazing. Absolutely. So, I love that. Yeah. Helen. You know, it, yeah, can, can, I, yeah. Oh, I, I'm sorry to, to interrupt you. <laughs> so, I got, yeah, it's just going to say that um, it's like this idea of like only a Christian can be an atheist. Right. It's all very well saying you know, we live in a rational universe. I mean, do we? I, we do, but dialectically, whatever. You know, it's, it's not yeah. quite captured by sort of an oppositional binary yes, no logic. There is something elusive within the universe. But only an, an atheist can be, a, only a Christian can be, only by investing totally in what you believe mm. can you come to realize that there's nothing there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so no, you, have to, I, I you have to go through this, yeah. Yeah. You know, so one of the things that's coming up is actually a couple of weeks ago, I, I interviewed both Peter Rollins and Richard Boothby, and we were talking yeah. about kind of a type of unknowing in Christianity. And I, I guess what we, one of the things we concluded was what we're not saying is if there's this radical mystery or there's this element of dusting, right, in others yeah. and, and the universe. What we're not saying is don't ask the questions and don't don't continue to explore or or to seek yeah. to understand at some level. It's just recognizing there's this thing we'll never fully understand, but that doesn't cancel the journey, like you're saying. And and to make a kind of a shameless plug for therapy, you know, I I deal with people all day that you know are trying to reconcile themselves to this awful reality in their life, whether it's the loss of a child or or some type of trauma. And, and no, they'll never fully integrate it or understand why it happened, but it doesn't mean they shouldn't seek to explore it and, and mm-hmm. really go exactly. deep and, and again, not fully understand it, but, but have some level of, of, yeah, familiarity with it, maybe. Exactly. Exactly. And we, we overinvest in things. That's, that's what makes us right. human. You know, right. we take things to the extreme. And, but that's a positive thing. It only becomes toxic if we, don't have this sort of element of 
questioning yes. or exploring within that exploring when it becomes this absolute that it can become really toxic and when we we really believe that the that the thing we're pursuing would make us happy or would change the world and it's it then we start to seek these people that can block us from achieving it in our minds or then we start to self-sabotage and create more problems in our life and really suffer but that's not to say that we shouldn't do the things that we want Mm. you know in all their risks in all their kind of difficulties but with that sort of position of you know knowing that now is more important than you know then or yes in the future you know so so really valuing the present as it is you know that that we can accept where we are mm. and it's okay you know and actually the self-help bit is like then maybe the things that you want to do become easier but right it's difficult to yeah it's difficult <laughs> to really accept where you are often sure, sure and what things that have happened you know and this is this can be an impossible thing to do in terms of loss and death and stuff like you, oh yeah there's things you just can never accept no I, I i know that's the case for me and and you know i guess one of the things that does frustrate me about the self-help and i'm in those circles on social media given what mm-hmm. i do that there's almost this finality where it's like okay if you do these five things then you will reach a point where then you're like really good and and my philosophy mm-hmm. is I don't know that you ever stop struggling with certain things or mm-hmm. you, you you never get rid of the contradiction. So we've got to stop telling people that there's a finality to things. It's it's exactly. kind of open ended and yeah. <laughs> the struggle <laughs> endures forever. As pessimistic mm-hmm. as that sounds, no, it does. It's never. And the thing is, it's like if we talk, talk about you know issues related to society at the moment. Yes, things have to happen, right? Somebody. Some things have to change in terms of our economy. You know, things aren't working. Sure. But often it, people might think that if you, you listen to this sort of form of things, it's sort of just just give up on trying to change. It's not going to do anything. That's not the case at all. It's almost like if you can disinvest libidinally from fantastical objects, you can sort of actually become less capitalistic in a way. And, you know, this isn't to say that capitalism is, you know, there's all sorts of... Um, ways of organizing society that have downsides and i think we're just witnessing the downside of yes. you know, our economic system at the moment and things need to change to make the world you know more livable for, for many people but it's actually we're able to change it more not not in the sense of like we've accepted our you know that you know and one accepts that one's poor or something like that but one accepts the logic that the logic of the markets which says you can have this you can be the person who wins the lottery you can be the person who's plucked from obscurity, and it's going to be you. Mm. But then you can look at reality and maybe think about changing it and taking the political change, you know, that, to make to make the world better. You know, things do need to change. And it's often, yeah, I think people can think that, like, this sort of point of view is saying, yeah, d- don't make any changes. Just it's, it's absolutely, you know, you actually become more freed up to make positive change. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. This sort of perspective, yeah. Okay, can you help me understand um, a quote from Lacan that that you actually okay. include <laughs> that you include in the movie at the very beginning? Yeah. Uh, several okay. people have asked me about this, and I don't know exactly yeah. what he meant, but I'm intrigued. Yeah. Right. Love is giving what you don't have to someone who doesn't want it. Do you have a sense of of what yeah. that means? Yes. Yeah, so first of all, the not having <laughs> is. <laughs> is we all don't have we all we all miss something so 
when we think about, we talked about like how humans come to speak. Yes. It's because of a primary frustration, a primary kind of sense that we're missing something. And you've talked about like the death ding and yeah. the mother. I was going to say, There's right, a, isn't it related to that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this part of us that we, and we talk about Tammy Faye like this and all these great works of art that you can talk about them. And this is also why it's interesting because like, um, you know, the, the filmmaker, David Lynch, he's always like, sure. I never talk about my movies. I never philosophize. The movies do the talking. And I'm like, the reason why I don't mind talking about my movies or talking and talking and talking, it's like, you're never going to get to the bottom of them anyway, no, because right. I don't even know what they're about. So, right. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying like David Lynch is wrong. Like that's, that's a perspective, but like, it's, I actually think that he hasn't gone a step far enough in what he's thinking. Cause it's like, agreed. His films do the talking, but actually, do they do the talking? Like, what makes a film, what makes the works of art amazing, it, elusive and, like, compelling is that there's something in it that we just, we're never going to understand. Yes. So, yes. And that's what makes art art. You know, that's Absolutely. Why, you know, um, so, yeah, we, we have that. Okay, we will have that. And then um, often what, what, so what makes us love? And invest in things and other, other people is the fact that we we have this sense that we don't have something and that we can connect to somebody else because of that thing that we don't have. So we're giving that part of ourselves, but it's also what makes us lovable. So, I mean, Lacan and Freud talk about this a lot. I mean, objet petit a, this sure, is this sure. elusive thing in the other person that keeps us coming back, yes. wanting more. We're never, you know, we the person that we love, you know, we can talk about like, when we're attracted to somebody, it's like they're extremely handsome or they make lots of money or something. Right. But really, you know, when you really love somebody and she takes talked about this, it's like when, when they've got something in their teeth and it doesn't bother you, or you know, they, yeah. they do something that annoys you, but you still, you know, because the love is about something that's beyond these sort of categories of like, how hot are they? Or right. It's, it's, it's the imperfections. Um, exactly. And then I guess the, 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 the not wanting it is, this is something, you know, in order to love, maybe in order to invest in things, we have to imagine that they are a perfect solution to us, but they aren't. And mm. the thing that we're giving them that's the elusive part of us is not going to fulfill them either. So it's like we both want it, we don't want it. Like the, the elusive thing, the obshipity is the thing that makes us want and makes life worth living and makes us curious. And But then it's like, do we really, you know, what we think we want is something whole and complete and perfect and a perfect commodity that's easy and that just fulfills everything that we, that we, we, we feel like we need. But in the film, I guess, what I liked in this quote was this idea that, you know, it, when this woman comes to understand that lack and lack is part of life yes. and that death is part of life, it's a message she doesn't really want, mm. but it's given to her in love you know and it's a message of love because it's the thing that's going to help her okay and that she you know that death is part of her as well you know yes. she's she's going to die as well but essentially all there are are these other people who come with this loss as well who are offering up their own not having to her in G love got you yeah oh that's powerful so I guess one of the things that's coming up, just to go back to Dusting, I, I don't know if you've read yeah. uh, Richard Boothby's latest work, uh, Embracing the Void. Oh, God, you have to, because yeah, you know, his, his basic argument is that you know, uh, what, what humans have, have called religion in its various manifestations is kind of our attempt to relate to Dusting, and, and he goes deep mm -hmm. into that. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, I just think there's some interesting connections with what you were saying. 
And, and you know, one of the things that's really fascinating too about his argument in terms of Christianity is that, you know, if, if, if there's one thing that critical scholars point out about Jesus that's really unique to him is that he talked about loving one's enemies, right? Which mm-hmm. I think connects mm-hmm. to what we're talking about. But what Boothby points out, I don't know if it's unique to him, is that the problem with that, as, as, as great as that injunction is, is that it also creates a tremendous amount of anxiety, and it's probably what led to Christianity becoming this massively doctrinal uh, I know. I c- kind of tradition. Is, this is correct. Yeah. Because I feel like Tammy embodies the message of Jesus. Right? Okay. And look how anxious she is. Yes. No, exactly. I, I was thinking about that when you were mentioning her anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe for her it was the makeup instead of kind of a doctrine. Exactly. It was the makeup. It was she had all these bodily symptoms. She had, you The ticks and grimaces, um, I think, as you put it. Exactly. And she she ended up, you know, with, with cancer and really being ill for a mm. long time and being very unwell and being addicted to sort of medication and stuff. And I have to say this anecdotally in my own life. Right? So I am, I, I'm a very anxious person. Oh, right? I am too. And, and so, and I don't think that this, um, and I do often wonder if it's to do with the fact that I'm into this sort of set of ideas in a way, but, and this is, this is where it becomes quite difficult because I think that anxiety sure. as well can be assuaged by, better material conditions and relationships and parental relationships and familiar relationships. And what I think the problem, what this exposes maybe is that we're in a society where I think the set of ideas is, is really necessary to help us, but we haven't got to the point yet where we're building a society that makes people less anxious materially. So, you know, social media is something that makes people extremely anxious, you know, feeling like you're not doing enough and other people have more than you and yes. this perpetual need to succeed. But not only that, this student loans, rising prices, inflation, when am I going to get a job? How am I going to pay off my debt? You know, and the we are more, um, there was a study recently in the UK that I always, I say this all the time, like, because I guess when you do podcasts so much, you like have these examples that you thought of and you've seen them and then you can't remember the exact details. Uh-huh. So I don't know the exact digits, but something like, you know, um, a couple in the UK saves something like 800 and something pounds a month as a couple rather than as a single person. So gotcha. obviously in terms of profit seeking, it becomes more amenable to the market to be, not that there's a problem with being single and many people, and you know, it's, it's better for them and it's better to be single right. in a toxic relationship and all this kind of stuff. But we have a society that divides us up and we don't have this interpersonal connection. You know, when we are, a lot of our human relationships have been replaced by um, screen mediated relationships. Yes. And one of the issues with this, it's like, so um, so Instagram is not like just a public platform. It's a privately owned platform that needs to seek profit. Mm. So it has to um, get us addicted to watching it. So it might make us show us things that make us feel inadequate. So we keep coming more for this for the solution. Yeah, those so, motherfuckers. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yes, fuckers, exactly. <laughs> but also, you know, seeing someone through a screen because of the history of like cinema, right? Where so, I mean, this isn't the only reason, but this is an example where. Sure. We used to watch movies and these, and even today, you know, these are gods and goddesses on on screen who we relate to and we can project, you know, like the um, mirror stage in in childhood development. Yes. These are, these are whole and complete beings who have- Non-castrated. Exactly. And so when we see people, because of that whole history of cinema, it's like, and also the the nature of how we, so when we, when we're children, we don't feel 
we feel like this sort of like unorganized bunch of limbs and feelings. And then yes. you start to see yourself in the mirror and some adult will say, that's you. And in the mirror, the image is all tied together in a body and it looks all together and with it. And this is part of how we come to identify as, as a human subject. But it requires this sort of investment, sort of incorrect quote unquote investment in this image, which is whole, even though we don't feel whole. So we do this with, with images and screen media. It's like they appear more organized to us right. than we feel ourselves. So this sense of the other person who we're not, we're not sort of sitting down in a pub as much as we used to or whatever, or having debates mm. or, you know, being in a village where there's a thousand people and everybody knows everybody's business. And, you know, you know that everybody's got difficulties, whatever. We're just seeing this perfect version of all these people we know or are acquainted with. And we, it makes us feel anxious because it seems they seem more together than we feel. Yes. And I think that, the anxiety of our age is what needs, to, you know, the, the, the anxiety producing sort of like material conditions of our age need to change. Um, but maybe the only way to do that, or one of the ways to do that is to see reality for what it is. And these sort of like um, philosophical insights can help us do that. But it, there is a worry that they can make us also feel anxious. Yeah. But in the, in the fact, in the sort of material conditions of today, I mean, like, it's something that I do worry about. You know, is it is it right to give people these ideas? Is it is it better and easier to be less anxious in our delusions? Mm. I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't know. I wrestle with that personally with my clients. No, I, I think it's a great question. I'm, I'm glad you're bringing that up. <laughs> I, I, I definitely don't but, have an answer, yeah. but but I, I do think about that as well. But I wonder, I don't know, this is a question for you. Do you think that like in accepting anxiety, that there's a way to lessen the toxic effects of anxiety? A hundred percent. I mean, do you? Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, from a therapeutic perspective, you know, I, I work with a lot of teenagers, a lot of teenage guys and A, they, they first of all, don't want to be in therapy. They're almost kind of forced mm -hmm. to by their moms. But when they yeah. get there and they're very anxious you know, the first month or so is trying so hard to deny the fact that they have anxiety. And it's not until they come to some type of acceptance of that reality that they can make any real progress. So I, I, I'm a huge believer that, yeah, you can't move forward in any way until you kind of come to that kind of hard mm -hmm. reality. Oh, yeah, I'm an anxious person. Or, or I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm enmeshed in this kind of toxic system at school or whatever that's really resulting in <laughs> this anxiety, and and they have to kind of come to terms with that before they can make any progress. So yes, I, I think that's important. But sometimes, yeah, it is true that sometimes, like the anxious symptom is deflected into something else, and so oh, sure. you don't even know that you're anxious because sure. you've got some other symptom. And then when you actually feel the anxiety, actually, this is this is the place where you can do something about it and when it's sort of caught up in this other kind of symptom or you don't even know that you're anxious i mean i spent for, right. I, I did a couple of years of psychoanalysis recently and i it's hilarious and this is also where you know this vision of yourself is never and this is why you need others and you need communities because yes psychoanalysis and therapy work by showing you what you already what is already going on with you that you haven't been able to see and um, yeah my wife can yeah. show me and and reveal to me that i'm a piece of shit in ways that i probably can't see <laughs> but okay but I, i'm sorry i interrupted yeah. you you, you were, you were no, going to say something about your analysis but yeah i didn't i didn't realize that i was anxious uh, it, was, it was hilarious but mm. i'm i am <laughs> there you go there you go 
Yeah. So, okay, Helen, do you have time for maybe one more strand in your thinking that, that I was accessing that I wanted yeah. to ask you about? Okay. Go for it. And, and I know in a little bit I have to get off because I have to run to my office and see my first client this morning. But um, <laughs> you, and, and I, I, in my notes, I don't remember. So, you, okay, yeah, you wrote a piece in your Substack uh, that I'll, I'll include in the show notes The mm-hmm. Man Who Shot Liberty, Valance, and Masculinity. So, you know, mm-hmm. this is therapy for guys. I, I do work a lot on gender and masculinity, but I thought you had some really fascinating things to say about that. And so I guess my, my, my big question for you is, have you thought through why figures like Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson and mm-hmm. uh, who is it, Matt Walsh, what, what, why they're so popular these days? What, what, what does it say yeah. about the contradictions that we're living in? It's interesting because, I mean, I, I haven't really thought about uh, Jordan Peterson. It's an interesting one because like, I, can, I can see why people are interested in him. But from a psychoanalytic perspective, the sure. critique that I, and I think it's funny because I think some people have thought like that they thought that I would like him. But he like really, in my opinion, gets psychoanalysis asked about it. So that's really like, <laughs> he's, like he's just I just don't think he's like theoretically a very. But I can I can see, you know, why people have um, sought these figures out. And I think there's there's lots of different reasons. Um, obviously, our society and economy has changed a lot um, in a very very quick period of time. Yes, and um, this has meant that certain traits are less welcomed and less uh, useful, quote unquote, mm. to the market. Um, and I also think so. So on the, there's that. Um, there's also things like, you know, we we lived for, not just for sort of um, economic reasons, but more kind of societal and cultural reasons. You know, things have changed in terms of um, family structures, the way children are born, all these kinds of things. And, it, you know, it's happened so quickly and th- things change, you know. The ways that societies have been organized in different periods of time have, have been different. And a lot of changes happened a lot, really quickly. Some of the changes, though, so so on the one hand, we can say that this affects um, gender roles or that gender roles become less appropriate. Sure. But I actually think that the real, the really bad stuff is not stuff that's affected one gender or another, but the stuff that affects everybody. Mm. So, um, you know, living standards have dropped immensely for everybody yes um opportunities are fewer for everybody the last three years and you know the wealth of the um whatever top percent has 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 gone up hugely and normal people have been squeezed yes and the the groups of people who've been squeezed first i mean there there are all different ways you know of cutting the cake so we can talk about um historical injustice to different um different groups of people, you know, in terms of different centuries and the legacy that that's had today. And those are all really important discussions. So this is one discussion amongst many, but um, a lot of the jobs that went first were sort of manufacturing jobs, um, traditionally masculine roles. We live in a more sort of service-based economy in the West. Um, But these are problems that have happened because of, you know, the entire economic system. Yes. And what is easier on say let's say both sides of the political spectrum or all dimensions of the political spectrum is tying back to what we're talking about is to say that the problem is not 
an intrinsic problem with the entire system, a system that works because we deny it, because it's easier for us to deny it. You know, we we can imagine that we're anti-capitalists, but st- you know, we're talking about these these sort of things like the authenticity, how that yes. can be captured by the market. Oh, like, yeah. We often just think that capitalism is just like having a job and not getting paid enough. It's, you know, it's the way that social media works. It's the way that we're libidinally invested in commodities. It's sort of our religious um, involvement in the market system. And it's very difficult. Not it's hiding our source of satisfaction, I think, as McGowan exactly. puts it. Yeah, exactly. It absolutely is. So not only do we not understand how it operates, but we don't even see it. Yeah. And we're so caught up in it in this sort of utopian level because it's almost like not really like an economic system. It's more like a libidinal system. So mm-hmm. even if we can consciously be like, oh, I'm a good person. I vote for the right parties. I'm not a selfish person. I'm like, we can still be invested in our own pursuit of satisfaction in a way that's highly capitalistic. So the problem is something to do with this system and where it's got us right now and how it it affects everybody. But it, the pull of it is so strong that we'd rather say on the one side, my group of people has been affected more than everybody else. Well, there are, but the thing is, this is the thing that's really sad because some of it's true as well. There are groups that have been affected more than everybody else. But let's say in this instance, let's say men have had it hard. And you know, there's elements of truth to that. But where it becomes incorrect is when it's saying, the only problem with the world is my problem, mm. not this universal problem that cuts across everything. And it would all be fixed if we went back to monogamy. I don't know what is Jeremy, what's he called? Jordan Peterson say, you know, enforce monogamy or something. Enforce we monogamy, yeah. Yeah, or if women did this or if men got this, if men were respected. Unfortunately, the problem is much worse than that. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's much more fundamental and universal. So there's on, the, on that side, but then on the other side, there is this sort of thing of like, if only we didn't have these toxic ma- men, if only we, you know, men knew the, what's it that you see these slogans, these sort of, I, I saw, said this actually, you see this often, you know, where you have these like sloganeering and these sort of movements that don't really go anywhere, but kind of maybe stoke a culture war, right? which gets, gets us stressed out at the level of what is a woman? Exactly. Instead of actually, why are we so stressed and anxious about something when we have this wider economic problem mm. that nobody feels that they have the power to do anything about? It's almost like there is this, you know, we feel we don't have the power to do anything about it. And also, we don't really know what it is because we haven't really, I think, theologized the problem. Ooh, I like that way of so putting you have it. This, so you have this sort of, on the one side, this group is the problem. And if it wasn't for this group, then we'd have a better functioning society. It's just toxic. The patriarchy, that's the problem, the patriarchy. Right. When I don't think people actually know what the word patriarchy really means, for instance. <laughs> and on the other side, it's like, if only it weren't for feminists, then the world would be perfect. Or all we have to do is go back to the way things were, then it would be great. Well, A, back then it wasn't great either. And there are lots of people who are excluded from that. Yeah. But also there's no going back. Mm. You know, there's no going back. We, we, you know, no, you're right. we're in a different world, you know. And there, are, but, but having said that, so there's, there's that one thing where, and it's easier to have this culture war. You know, it's more libidinally satisfying because we get to sustain this utopian fantasy 
that the world's perfect and there's a perfect economic system. We don't have to sure. tarry with our contradictory desires. Mm. There's this sort of toxic certainty that if only we fix this and on one side it's this person's the problem and on the other side it's, you know, we've suffered the most and you're the problem. And that's really, you can see that intense sort of capitalistic logic there where it's, where it's like the same as the commodity. Oh, yeah. As long as I get this pair of Nike trainers, then I'm going to be whole and loose. As long as I get rid of this group or this idea, then it's going to be perfect. And I think both Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson and people like that and their detractors play into this dynamic, even though we can actually logically say that the detractors are correct. Or we can also logically say that, yeah, there are some things that Jordan Peterson says where I understand why people are drawn to that because of the right. way they're feeling. Right, exactly. But there's something even more frightening going on, mm. but potentially more powerfully liberating if we're able to reach Ooh. that point. And I think you see the troubles in Northern Ireland. It got to a point where people realized that we had to do the conflict in order to get rid of the war. And that's sitting down with people and making agreements with people and, and, and you know, having grace for people in order to, yeah. to move forward. And this is why I think Tammy is so... You know, yes, to bring it back. I love it. We all know, we see ourselves in Tammy, all of us. And she is somebody who's like, you know, damn it, we have to sit down and, and hash this out yes. and then understand really what's going on. And this is also to say, just as a caveat, like, you know, there are people that are, that suffer worse under capitalism. There are people that are more exploited. There are these, yes. But often those people don't even get to look in in the debates precisely because they're exploited. It's like you can only you only know you're a victim when you're no, no longer a victim in a way. Right. Like you've been victimized by, by the system. There's, there's no way of this. This victimization is completely hidden. And there is a huge amount of exploitation and, and, and um, unfairness. But it's getting to the point where the unfairnesses are creeping further and further and further up the economic system that people, you know, are kind of... Yes, the disparity you know, is growing. The disp yeah, the disparity is great. And I think, you know, you look at... I mean, I'm a millennial. I am and too. I always sort of... Millennials rock, right? I feel like there's this, this thing <laughs> of, you know, millennials are snowflakes, millennials are the most pampered generation, you know. But it's like, when you think of the recessions that people have gone through... Mm. The amount of debt people got into, the comp the way their life, the promises they were sold, you're know, growing up yes. in the nineties when there was greater affluence than now. And people are so well qualified. And I call it this the holding pen that people get into in their career where they're promised that they have to do one more master's degree and then they'll earn a salary. And it just gets and you can see that these people, and I think some people from some corners of society are like, Well, these people went to university, what do they know? They're right. not like me. They're but actually there's a lot more in common. With every, you know, people who didn't go to university and people who did go to university in terms of the, you know, the the, the dissatisfaction and, and economic issues with the system. Yes. So the point being, I think with that essay, it's like, I don't, I don't personally think that patriarchy and the received wisdom sense of the world is the problem. It's a, it's a way to, um, maybe it's a shorthand people use mm -hmm. to try to get to the issues. But the issues are much more universal than a question of man and woman. Okay. And I think, you know, it's it's an it's an easy binary. You know, in in the past, I and mean, this is what in the British um, colonial system, what happened is, you know, in these sort of arbitrary created uh, countries um that were part of uh when Britain had this empire, they would um divide people up along race lines and often choose a smaller 
group of people to you know to to be elevated in a certain way sure and it's these these visible differences that can be weaponized as a way to be like as a way to capture the imagination and to have this sort of identitarian issue instead of realizing that this is there are people who are treated worse but in order to get to the point where we treat a certain group of people less bad than others we have to have this universal understanding yes. so we have to get to a fellow so and i think you know i do have i i love men i think men are fantastic i think what men have to offer is and um, you know and i don't believe that there's it's ever a solution to 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 blame one category of person mm. um because there's nothing that anybody can do about it anyway and i do see that the problems are not and often because I guess I'm a bit more materialist than the average person, I would see that um, a lot of the changes that happen in society aren't necessarily because um, of what we think we've changed, but rather because of material changes that have created subjects in a certain way. Or, say, for instance, you know, the introduction of the pill, for instance. This yeah. changes society. This isn't necessarily that um, we've just taken it upon ourselves. There are lots of brave people who do take things upon ourselves, but this is themselves, but this is like, why did movements happen? So, I think you have to have a lot of empathy for people. Yes. Because there's systems that are going on beyond people's control. Yes. Um, and this is where the eyes of Tammy yeah. Faye come in, right? I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, yes. but, but this yes, is what yeah. Jay, Jay and I were connecting over was her tendency to take those that had died in her life, their, her, their glasses, and it was giving yeah. her an opportunity to see through their eyes. I, 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 I like the psychotherapist Irvin Yalom, and he talks about empathy mm -hmm. as looking out the other person's window. I, I like the idea of empathy being looking out the other person's eyes as best as we can. Mm -hmm. We can't do that perfectly, but I think we need more empathy in our world. I think we absolutely do. And I think it's, it becomes more difficult the more alienated we are, the more siloed we are, the more yes. the less sort of public interaction yes. there is the more economically precarious we are. But I think one of the lessons of psychoanalysis is there is no un uncastrated person. Everybody lacks. Absolutely. There's no, there's no group that, that um, existentially has something that other people don't, don't have. But materially, there are groups of people or individuals that have loads more than other people, you know, and that's something that we can do something about in terms of political change. Yes. But existentially, it's like, because we operate, we, we live in a material, and this is why I like the sort of dialectical materialism. It's like it combines this idea of materialism with also the fact that humans are human subjects. Right. And so we we lack, we experience reality in a certain way. Material reality affects our subjectivity and our subjectivity affects material reality. And we can conflate the two a lot. So we can say, well, how can you say we're equal? Because that person's a billionaire and that person isn't. But it's like, well, if we base our political and material, uh, philosophical understand, political understanding on the fact that existentially this person also suffers and the billion pounds doesn't make a difference. Okay. It can make their life easier, can make them happier on a material level, but on this existential level, it doesn't. Yes. Then we can maybe take this like fantasy dynamic, this toxic pursuit dynamic out of the market system and make it more reasonable and fairer. Yes. But I don't think we can just do that without some kind of philosophical shift. Oh, I love it. Okay. Helen, I am like, crossing my fingers really hoping that this isn't the last time that we talk because <laughs> I yeah I, it's been a great conversation yeah I, I, re I really enjoyed your energy and just your perspective um in fact selfishly I wanted to ask have you by any chance watched the 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 show it's on apple plus set in Ireland called bad sisters 
No, I haven't, but I do want to. I've heard oh my about God. it. Okay, may, be, maybe in the yeah. future we could talk about that because that's okay. It, it was my wife and I. We, we, it was one of our favorite shows in 2022. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. I think it has a lot of interesting Great. ideas within it. Great, and I'm looking forward to it. I actually realized <laughs> I didn't realize I had a subscription to Apple TV, and I did. Oh, so there I you go. Get through. I need to get through all these shows. <laughs> yeah, oh, that one's such a good one. Okay, so before we sign off, because I do have to go uh, to see yeah. a client, is there anything? that you would want to leave sort of the audience with in terms of who you are, your project, anything coming up, uh, you know, wh- wh- where you would encourage them to go to find you if they want to access your work, that kind of stuff. And I'll include all the links. Yeah. I mean, share, share links to the movie. I, the stuff that I like more about what I do is the movies than the ideas. But, okay. Um, movies take a long time to do. And also it can be quite difficult to share them with people because of, I mean, it, this is the you, it, in, for the market system. You have to kind of have things private and stuff, which I really right. don't like. And there's, I'm actually just th- thinking of putting everything online. Okay. But if you share the the alone link, that would be great. Okay. Yes, I'll do that yeah. for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, would you mind just ending with the line of the podcast, which I I think you'll resonate with, uh, kind of captures my spirit and what this is all about, by just saying the words "continue the conversation." Continue the conversation. Thank you so much, Helen. Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. I'd love to connect with you. Whether that means you sign up for therapy or you send me an email asking a question or maybe even explore what it would look like to get on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. The best way to do that is to find me on my website at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. Or you can just Google me. And there you'll find my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. You can also go to the website of the practice I work at, where I'm the Leeds Men's Counselor. That's katiecounselingformen.com. I hope that you guys are inspired by what we explore today. And as always, continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.